0: to the Plugged In Podcast, a new project from the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens.
1: And I'm Jordan McGillis.
0: Joining us today to discuss public lands is Jennifer Fielder. Jennifer is CEO of American Lands Council and a state senator in Montana, where she chairs the Montana State Fish and Game Committee and is vice chair of the Judiciary Committee. In 2013, she led a statewide study of problems and solutions associated with federal land management and has since become one of America's top leaders in the legislative legal efforts to transfer federally controlled public lands to willing states. Ms. Fielder, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today.
2: Hey, it's my pleasure. Thank you.
1: Ms. Stiller, you and I met uh, last month in in late October um, at the State Policy Network Conference. And for for any listeners who don't know about that organization, I would highly advise looking into uh, what they do. Basically, they connect people from around the country at pre-market think tanks, at organizations that are trying to uh, instill more um, rights-respecting or conservative or libertarian philosophies into politics. We met, and it was right at the height of some of the hubbub over the California wildfires and PG&E's responses to those. Uh, And as an energy policy guy, when I saw your table, I was really interested to hear what somebody with your lands perspective um, had to say on these questions. So let's start really big picture here and talk about what the American Lands Council does and uh, what your general perspective on federal lands and the state of affairs is. That'd be great.
2: Oh, sure. Well, the American Lands Council is a nonprofit organization. We have the American Lands Council Foundation, which does education and research. And then the American Lands Council itself is is a advocacy organization. So there's there's a C4 and a C3 that work together. Um, Our objective is to increase access, health and productivity on our nation's federally controlled lands. And uh, the main approach to that, uh, pr- solving that problem, is to transfer, transfer the federal lands to states so that they can actually be managed uh, with common sense and with local knowledge.
1: I think the first question that uh, would be helpful to address that most people will find the answer to very surprising is how much land is controlled by the federal government right now.
2: Yeah, over 640 million acres in the United States is under the control of the federal government. And if you look at the uh, the map of the United States that we often display with our material, you will see that most of that federal land is in the western states. In fact, if if you look at the total acreage of the western United States, over half of all the land in western America is actually owned by the federal government. In some states, it's it's close to 90% of the entire state, like Nevada. In Utah, it's two-thirds of the state. In other states, it's 25 or 30% of the entire state. Whereas in the East, the uh, federal control of the states averages less than 5% per state.
1: And if you were to look at the figure, that 640 million acre figure, in terms of a percentage of, uh total U.S. land. Is it somewhere between a quarter and a third, somewhere in that ballpark?
2: It's right around a third of all the land in the United States is, is yes, federal yeah. land. It's astounding. It's just, it's just astounding. The states that have all this federal land in them can't really operate as states. We're more like colonies. We can't tax the soil uh, when it's under federal uh, ownership. We can't inhabit it, and we can't uh, utilize the natural resources, and they won't even allow us to put wildfires out when they start on federal lands, oftentimes. Now, there's been some exceptions to that, but there's been some great uh, travesties in some of the states where there'd be a wildfire that breaks out and state fire crews are ready to go and put the fire out. And the federal government has actually ordered them to stand down and not do anything. And those fires ended up erupting into major catastrophic fires that cost tens of millions of dollars to manage.
1: In terms of the historical context.
2: I haven't, haven't
1: really studied this, um, so I'm genuinely curious. How did that uh, regional divide arise? Was that a result of uh, just natural organic processes of land ownership in the east? And then like the Louisiana Purchase resulted in the federal government having control of most of that land west of the Mississippi and then doling it out um just in small increments.
2: Oh, it's a great question. So, the western states tend to be newer states, you know, the the older states along the in the east and the midwest were formed earlier. They they received their statehood commissions earlier. So, those states actually used to be federal territory, you know, it was a federal territory before they became states. And even after those Midwestern states became states like Florida and Iowa and Missouri and all through there, um, after they became states, a whole, a great deal of their land was still owned by the federal government. And they actually went through a, a similar process that we're trying to go through now. They did it in the 1820s and 30s, where they were petitioning the federal government to relinquish the title to the federal land so that they could actually operate as states. And those states were successful in, in accomplishing that. But it took a, a huge political effort to get that done. So we just haven't really had that statehood equality um, take place with the newer, the younger Western states yet.
0: How does management of public lands get broken down? Is it just one federal agency that's responsible for all of this land or is it separated? Different agencies are responsible for different areas or what does that look like?
2: Oh, there's numerous agencies with with varying uh, missions and objectives, but there's one Congress, and Congress makes the laws for the federal land, and then the executive executes the laws for the federal lands. And and when there's issues, uh, legal issues that arise on federal lands, they're heard in federal court. So that's the system that we're under right now. But, you know, when the lands are transferred to the state, then we could actually have the state agencies govern the lands. And then the the issues that arise, the legal issues and things like that would be heard in state courts and be, um, you know, be decided by juries of actual peers of people that live in and understand um, the local culture and and the needs and so forth. Something that
1: is very pertinent to energy policy as it's, comes up against land policy is this uh, multi-use doctrine, um, which leads to a lot of conflicts. Uh, can you talk about what that doctrine entails and, and how it's been utilized or manipulated by the federal government?
2: Yeah, well, going back to the prior question, there's these different agencies that have different objectives and different missions. and. Um, then there's also state lands that have their agencies and their, their um, missions and objectives. And they, it's a, it's a, it's a maze. There's just all these varying different goals and objectives. And unfortunately um, Congress doesn't really understand the needs of the landscape. You know, and most of the members of Congress aren't from the West and aren't from the areas where these predominant that are predominated by federal land. So um, you have a great disconnect between between the people that are making the decisions and the actual landscape and the communities that are affected by them. So um, it's it's kind of a mess Um, in some areas. um, The mission is supposed to be very focused, but it's really been hijacked by activist courts. And almost all of the federal land now has been put into what we call lock it up and let it burn status, where. Um, these law firms claiming to, to operate under the guise of environmentalism, which I, I seriously doubt in many cases, um, are actually have figured out a way to exploit the federal laws and bring lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit to stop active management of the federal lands. And what that has done is allowed our forests and our rangelands to become overgrown and um, inaccessible. Access has been removed because of these, these groups. And of course, they're they're raking in the dough from these lawsuits because if they win on one little technicality, they um, are recompensated for their expenses to a very large degree. Uh, actually, billions of dollars um, have gone out in settlements to these group settlements, and and uh, some of that's been very uh, secretive. We uh, the new administration's been trying to shine spotlight on that and, and start. Um, putting information up about who's benefiting from these lawsuits. But um, that's what's been going on. The federal lands have been largely placed into a lock it up and let it burn status. And that's why you're seeing such catastrophic wildfires. It's a huge factor. And it's a factor that has, has um, largely been ignored or overlooked by the environmental groups that um, you know claim to care about the environment, but aren't helping us to be able to reduce the wildfire threats and actually improve wildlife habitat. So it's been really Kind of frustrating and ironic to to watch some of these organizations that claim to be environmentalists actually cause the destruction of, of our environment as well as our economy. I want to hear
1: more about this lock it up and let it burn phrase you're using and what the alternative would be. Can you tell us uh, what you would prefer to see and how we could better manage this land?
2: Well, yes, absolutely. Number one, access to the lands is critical. Access to the lands is critical for um, not only human health and enjoyment, but also for commerce and for management of the resources, for utilization of the landscapes. Um, We've got um, some really good uh, commercial practices that help reduce wildfire hazards But those practices have been run off of the landscape in recent decades. And those primary practices would be uh, grazing and also logging. When you do managed grazing and managed logging, you can have a healthy environment and reduce the fire hazard at the same time and produce revenues because the loggers and the grazers are are actually willing to pay for access to those resources and use of those resources and and then take um, and benefit from the lands in a way that that actually benefits society because they're providing valuable commodities to society like timber and and like uh, beef those types of things. So, um, the lock it up and let it burn doctrine entails shutting down access and activity on the landscape. And that is what the, um, the far left environmental community has been very successful at doing. And they've done it in, um, you know, in, in concert with some really crazy federal bureaucracy and, bad uh, federal laws uh, made by people that really don't understand the needs of the landscape because they're so far removed from it.
0: Yeah, the goal of the American Lands Council then is to try and move these federal lands back to the state level. Um, And my assumption would be that what that entails is often 10th Amendment challenges. Do you talk about the role that the 10th Amendment plays in this discussion?
2: Oh, yeah, it does. It does come down to allowing states to operate as states and to be treated equally. So, so yeah, states, uh, the right of the states and the people to to govern the lands and resources within their state is an inherent right. Um, We believe that when this goes to the Supreme Court, that uh, there there will be a decision by the court that rules that the federal government does not have the constitutional authority to retain so much land within our states for all these various purposes that aren't enumerated in the Constitution. There's been um, a very, uh, some very good legal analysis conducted on this topic ever since the state of Utah passed the Transfer of Public Lands Act in 2012, I believe it was and uh, some like the Federalist Society had done I think one of the first legal analysis on it and then the state legislature of Utah actually commissioned uh, a legal team to vet this uh, theory the theories out and identify if le- if Utah actually had a case in fact the state legislature of Utah has appropriated millions of dollars to pursue the legal case um, and they have found that Yes, the federal government does have a duty to divest itself of title to the land that it cannot retain the lands forever and ever and ever within our state unless those lands are retained for enumerated purposes identified in the Constitution, like military lands and uh, post offices and and things like that. Um, there are specific purposes that are allowed under the Constitution for the federal government to own and retain land, and, and they have to do it with the legislature's consent, by the way. But um, beyond that, it is the, the right and the responsibility of the states to govern the lands and resources and the people within their state boundaries.
1: With all due respect to those constitutional concerns, as someone who lives in California, I'm not excited by the prospect of the state government having more power. Now, I don't know the exact situation here in this state very well, and I'm a newcomer. Uh, but might we, we run the risk of even worse policies being put in place by a state government like the one we have in Sacramento?
2: Well, you can go uh, two directions with this. You can go to federal and global governance, or you can go to state and local governance. And you tend to get better decisions when they're made by people closer to the subject matter. That's just an eternal principle that, that, that Uh, you'll see across any spectrum in politics. So our mission is to decentralize the federal power uh, because the further away the decision makers are, the worse the decisions tend to be. Now, one thing that would really help in our states that we are advocating for is that the state government um, would have to coordinate with the counties where the lands are located so that the county resource management plan that's adopted by the local government is the uh, driving force behind the land management decisions and, and governance so the more local you can bring it the more uh, the better the decisions you're going to get because nobody cares about the land more than the people that live right there. Nobody cares about the air they breathe than the people that are actually breathing it or the the water we drink than the people that are drinking it. And the management of these federal lands affects our water and our air every single day. Um, and, And the most obvious way is when the wildfires break out, You know we're choking on smoke for weeks or months at a time. It's destroying our watersheds and the streams are clogging up with this toxic sludge as the ash, you know, rinses down off the hills when there's a heavy snowfall or a rainfall and that ash clogs up the streams and chokes out the fish. And the wildlife habitat is absolutely destroyed and and not to mention the millions of, of wild animals that are being burned up in it. And these federal fires tend to sweep off of federal lands and engulf uh, private lands that are nearby too, destroying homes and communities and pets and, and uh, unfortunately people's lives as well. So local government is really the place where people care the most about their surroundings, and that's where you're going to have the best decisions made. And and sure, some some might mess up, but they're going to look at the other governments, the other counties that are doing really well, and go, wow, that county, you know, the people are going to look at what's working and what's not working. And the cool thing about local governance is you can change it pretty quick. You can you can change your leadership pretty easily in local government, and you can change your policies much more quickly in local government than you can at the federal or the global le- level. So restoring um, local governance to the the people. Is, is the thing is the real key to helping to get better decisions on the landscape. Very good
1: points. I must say, okay.
2: DLM, the Bureau of Land Management,
1: uh, recently recently announced that they'll be relocating headquarters to Colorado from Washington D.C. Do you view that optimistically, or do you think that's just window dressing? And it's the most important thing is devolving that power.
2: Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I think it's a uh, I think it's a a nod towards, you know, we need to have the decision makers closer to the land. And and in that regard, uh, we think it's good, but still the laws are being made by people thousands of miles away from the West who have never been to the land. Most of them haven't been out to the landscape. They don't represent the communities affected. And so dealing with the issues and the problems and solving those problems is not a priority for them. So um I, I you know, it's a little bit like rearranging the, the deck chairs on the Titanic as far as the federal bureaucracy goes, you're you're moving some things around. I think some good will come from it, but it, it's not going to be nearly enough to um come up with a long term solutions that we need for these lands. We we can't have these lands subjected to this national political football game every four years, four to eight years as administrations shift, and then the, the policy direction shifts on how to tend the lands. The lands are suffering, the people are suffering, our environment suffering, our economy is suffering because of that. So we've got to have stability. And the way you get that stability is you, you get the lands closer to the, you get the decisions closer to the people and, and where there's a vested interest across party lines to make sure that the lands are managed wisely.
0: Yeah, as you pointed out, the uh, federal mismanagement of lands shows itself in the wildfire issue. Um, Could you just explain what trends in wildfires look like uh, over the past couple of years and then um, give a little bit of a detailed account over what exactly is being mismanaged in terms of forests?
2: Sure. Well, you know, you want to look at the the forest and the rangeland on a long-term scale. So I use a 100 year uh, analysis and look back in time and what you can see is that in the 1940s and 50s and 60s when logging and grazing were quite prevalent on the federal landscape we had very few acres burned per year in fact it was it averaged around a half million acres per year that that burned from wildfire or from errant uh accident accidental fire and then, in the nineteen seventies, some very restrictive federal laws were passed um with probably with good intentions the initially but but they have been uh, abused and morphed and amended into just unworkable um policies that that have tied the hands of the land managers and and um taken the common sense out of land management so After those laws were passed in the 70s, um, two that I would cite would be the Endangered Species Act and then the Federal Land Policy Management Act. There's been several. Um, After they were put into effect in the 1970s, you see the number of acres burning has increased dramatically. Um, At first, you'd see a million acres or two million acres on federal lands burn um and then you'd see maybe 3 or 4 million acres but in this past decade we've been hitting as much as 8 9 10 million acres a year burning so you went from less than a uh, a million acres per year in the when access and logging and grazing were prevalent and then when these federal policies came in and ratcheted down access and grazing and logging that's when the fuel loads got out of control um there wasn't access to go in and do initial attack or to um you know do some prevention work and uh we've just seen an escalation in the number of acres burned. It's it's been um really, really devastating.
1: With the particularly catastrophic fires last November in California, particularly the campfire that um resulted in massive loss of life. Uh mm-hmm. P G and E Pacific Gas and Electric was ultimately found to be liable for that fire starting. Can you explain what these risks are exactly with transmission lines and where responsibility should lie for, or at least how you how you view it, for those risks?
2: Yeah, um, you know, and that's it's just really sad what happened in California. But you know, the same thing's been happening in other states too, in in all throughout the West, just on a Uh, a smaller scale, but nonetheless, uh, lives are being destroyed. Homes are being destroyed. Communities are being destroyed. You don't hear about it as much on the news because it's not as many people, but still each, each life is, is uh, a terrible tragedy when it's lost to one of these things. And, and um, you know, it's interesting to me that the um, government will often find private parties at fault um and and uh, penalize them heavily when they when there's an error that causes problems like this and you know there there should be penalties if if someone did something that's negligent and caused problems but on the flip side the federal government does it all the time and they never pay a dime they um they light fires intentionally you know through what they call prescribed burning or controlled burns and there's been numerous occasions where there uh, where the federal government's so-called controlled burns have gone well beyond the intended boundaries and destroyed private property, not only burned the federal land, but encroached on the private property and destroyed um, property and homes and, and ranch facilities and things like that too. So um, it's it's really amazing to me that the federal government um, never has to suffer the consequences of its bad uh, mistakes, but the private parties always do. Um, the one thing that uh is the common denominator between the two is that your your practices your practices for fuel reduction work is very, very important, and um your practices in how quickly you identify and fight a fire and how you fight the fire is very important but the the I think the state of California has some very, very strict environmental regulations that are as strict were potentially worse than some of the federal government's regulations, which has contributed to um, fuel buildups um, on the landscape that feed these fires. You know, if the fuel if the fuel loads on the landscape, in other words, the vegetation on the landscape were better managed, you would have a much better chance of fighting the fire and uh, i know that there's been um, severe reductions in grazing in california and logging and they've passed restrictions that you know in some communities where they don't even allow people to rake up the pine needles the dry dead pine needles that fall off the trees and things like that that have contributed largely to the fuel load build up and and that's a huge factor in why you're seeing these fires rage out of control i I was on a field tour at uh, lake tahoe earlier this year and we saw just that. We saw a community there where um, I think it was so, it was a few hundred homes had burned, but then it was right next to a community where none of the homes had burned. And you could see that the, the forest land next to the homes that were saved had been thinned and, and some selective logging had occurred in there. That forest had been thinned out and cleaned up and the fuel loads had been reduced and it was a nice, healthy forest. But in the areas where no logging had taken place and there was no fuel reduction work done, um, the fire raged very, very hot and spread to the nearby homes very quickly. And the firefighters there that were conducting the tour, the, the lead fire agencies, with the, out of a uh, California Fire Department and um, the Forest Service, were telling us that, you know, they can't put firefighters in front of a fire and try to stop one of these wildfires when the fuel uh, loads and the vegetation has not been properly managed. Um, It's just too hot and too intense and it's, they're not going to risk their lives and their equipment trying to get in front of one of those fires. So basically when you've got a a fire in a highly vegetated area that has not been properly managed um, and you get fire, you're going to see it just rage out of control because there's, you know, they're not going to, do anything about it uh, sometimes they'll get aerial aircraft up and try to you know try to get on top of it in that way but um, oftentimes you'll see uh, that there's really nothing they can do to stop an intense wildfire that that builds up in one of these undermanaged landscapes
0: yeah I think a big part of this issue gets to sort of a misunderstanding that we have in our political discourse where people tend to assume that public management of things means uh, accountability and responsibility. But when we look at the wildfire situation, uh, it certainly seems like that's not necessarily the case. Um, And there's a very important distinction, I think, to be made between uh, the incentives that exist under private ownership and public ownership that probably play a really important role in explaining what's going on here. Um I wonder if you could just talk about that a little bit.
2: Well sure. I mean the um the private landowner, you know, has an investment in that land and they care about it and they don't want it destroyed. They they tend to want to take good care of it and they know that it's an asset if you do. Um, the federal agencies don't, the employees don't really have to pay the consequences of what happens on the federal land. They get paid the same no matter what. In fact, some of them get uh, bonuses even when they've done a horrible job. So there's really not the incentive. Now, some people, just out of the goodness of their heart and the desire to perform, they try their best to do a good job, but um, in general, the bureaucracy Um, you know, complacency takes over and and people get paid the same. They do their job nine to five or whatever. And, and uh, you know, if they're doing timber management um, you know, great. If they're not, you know, they sometimes will throw their hands up in frustration because they know that they should be, but they can't, but nonetheless, it really doesn't impact them because they get paid the same and it's not their land. So yeah, there's a huge distinction in the incentives between the person who has personally invested in the landscape and and the person who has not. Um the middle ground is the uh the locally controlled lands, the the local public lands, state and local, because then you've got um people, taxpayers and so forth that can say, hey, that's our land. We we paid to acquire it. We paid to manage it. We we you know our neighbors and friends take care of it. Um, it's a benefit to our community. We enjoy it. And um when it's well managed it's it's good for all of us, and when it's not, it's bad for all of us and so people you know from the local level can see the impacts of good government and they can do something about it so there's you know there's three levels there's private there's local uh public, and then there's federal and of course you could go on to you know different microcosms within those within those areas as well there's all kinds of different land ownerships within within those boundaries but the the more local you get the better you can the better the results tend to be
0: the emphasis seems to be on having people make decisions who are uh the people who have skin in the game would be one way to look at it right
2: yeah yeah and you know um the lands when they're managed properly can produce uh, positive economic benefits and so you've got something like the national parks and now we we at American Lands Council are not advocating that the national parks be turned over to the states or the other uh, or the local government unless the federal government fails to keep them open and operating properly and and they actually do have a huge maintenance backlog but um if The other lands, the general use lands that the Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management administer, if those lands begin to be transferred to the states and the states are allowed to take care of them, the states can actually generate some revenues uh, from the lands from uh, commercial activities like some uh, beneficial logging and beneficial grazing and and mineral uh, development and, and energy and those types of things and those revenues from the lands would stay right in the state and those revenues can help pay for the areas of land that are set aside to be you know pristine wilderness or parks or that type of thing so the economics of this can work really well they they already do i mean the states already um own and manage about 40 million acres of state owned public lands in the west right now and the revenues from those lands pay for not only the management of the land and the firefighting and all that, but they also generate excess revenues that fund schools and roads and uh, pay for our veterans' homes and things like that. So we can do this. We know we can do this. It's really not rocket science. You just need uh, more nimble government uh, at, a lo- at a local level that's able to respond more quickly to the needs uh, of the landscape and that understands the local conditions because you know the conditions are going to vary Um, all over the country and and from basin to basin.
1: You've presented a very cogent view of devolving power and actively managing land as solutions to these issues, but there doesn't seem to be an ascendant movement in our political culture toward those things necessarily. Uh, Are you seeing it differently than me? Do do you have hope that we can begin devolving power and, and actively managing the land?
2: Yeah, I mean the key is education. You know, when when we are able to explain this to people, um they see it, they see the sense in it and they tend to support um you know moving away from uh, massive federal control and 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 decentralizing and moving to more local caring control. So it's it's really kind of an object lesson in liberty, if you'll if you will. Um When people see the impacts of what's happening on the landscape around them and and they're able to realize Mm -hmm. that, wow, that's a federal bureaucracy that really uh, doesn't know what they're doing and isn't connected with the people um, in that area and isn't really making good decisions, that's when people start to go, oh, yeah, we could do better locally. In fact, when you compare state-owned public lands to federal-owned public lands, which PERC has done, um, the Property and Environmental Research Center did a very nice analysis of uh, state-owned lands and federally owned lands and found that in every regard the state-owned public lands were outperforming the federal public lands in fact um, economically the states are are outperforming the federal government by about 10 to 1. so um, it's a matter of education to um, inform people and and get them to look at this objectively and to have fact-based conversations now the opponents do not want to have fact-based conversations all they want to do is repeatedly say that, oh, the states can't afford it and they'll sell it all off and you won't be able to hunt and fish at your favorite place anymore, which is the furthest thing from the truth that that there could be. Um, nobody cares more about the lands than the people that live nearest to them and rely on them and enjoy them every day. And, you know, if I'm an avid hunter and outdoors woman. Uh, the Senate district I represent is Um, largely um, people who hunt either for fun or for um, sustenance. Many families hunt actually for sustenance, and they hunt on the federal lands, and they know that they've been locked out and that there's been all these these closures. I mean, in in the state of Montana, the federal government has closed an average of 1,000 miles of access roads per year over the last 20 years, 1,000 miles. We did a legislative study on it. Uh, because we knew there were closures, but we didn't know how many. And um, so there was a study done in the state of Montana on that and found it's been 20,000 miles of roads have been closed over a 20-year period just recently. And, uh, you know, they're the ones, the federal government is is the ones that have been locking up the access and blocking us from getting to our traditional hunting and fishing grounds and places where we could go snowmobiling and off-road and things like that. So you know the, the the real key to this is educating folks about the issue, having fact-based conversations, and when we do, we tend to win people over. Which is why the opponents are so fiercely trying to make the issue um, not what it is at all, and and basically they have very shallow arguments that just don't hold water. And uh, in that regard, we win. But, of course, they have a lot more money than we do, and so they're able to message on a massive scale, and they control the media, so the media is always pushing. You know, the media never, ever talks about wildfire management, uh, fire prevention through reducing the fuel loads um, with active logging and grazing and and how that can be done in a way that's positive for the environment. And it can. I mean, it's just there's no no question that when you have well-managed logging and grazing, you have a healthy environment, too. But you'll never hear that on the news. All they talk about is it's global warming causing these wildfires and they always just use this this excuse that it's all global warming. The fact is, if the temperatures are increasing and, and drought is increasing and we've got a greater uh, risk of fire, wildfire, then why aren't they advocating for reducing the fuel load so that when the fires ignite, there's not as much fuel on the landscape to to uh, feed them and, and allow them to rage out of control. It doesn't make sense. They're not helping to solve the problem. They're just kind of using uh, global warming as a scapegoat to, you know, to basically take your take your eye off the real problem and the real solution and put it somewhere else to drive their uh, political agenda.
0: Something that you touched on there, which I think is really an underappreciated part of the argument for federalism, is the role that the culture in Western states plays as a check on what would be people's concerns about uh, the land just being sold off. The misunderstanding of that probably plays a little bit of a role in what you describe there with the way the media reports on these things. Could you talk a little bit more about the culture in Western states there? Uh, You mentioned it briefly before, but I I really think that that's an underappreciated thing here in Washington.
2: Oh yeah. Well, you know, we're we are public land states in the west. We, you know, we love our public lands. We, you know, for the most part, I you know, I have never run into anyone that wants to sell them all off um we we go out and we enjoy the lands we recreate on them we know that the the resources there are valuable and can provide um good jobs and support local economies and they have for you know since the beginning of our country but unfortunately over the last se- several decades the the access and use of the resources has been diminished so badly that that now there's um you know there's there's communities that are literally um just dying on the vine and it's directly related to the federal government's doctrine of of locking up the land and and putting it into a state of neglect, basically, and, and hands off, don't touch. But an interesting thing is that some of the uh, big environmental groups in this country, who claim to advocate for the environment, this this was a real shocker to me because I, when I got into the legislature, um, I conducted a a state study. I, I our legislature did. We, we passed a bill to study the land, and I carried that bill and chaired the study to um, to actually study what was going on with federal land management, why we were experiencing problems, and what the potential solutions were. And so I kept hearing the, um, the environmental groups say that, well, don't talk about transferring the land to the state because the state will just sell it off. And so I introduced a piece of legislation that would prohibit the state from selling the land off. I actually introduced a very simple bill in Montana, two of them, actually. One would prohibit the state from selling the land after it's transferred to the state, and the other one would prohibit the federal government from selling the land right now because the federal government actually does sell off the land. And it's it's amazing that these environmental groups that are telling everyone that, that you know, they they should fear the state selling it off. They came in and testified against the two bills that would have kept the public land public. They, they're they actually on record. We had uh, video, uh, you know, official capital video rolling that day in the hearing. One hearing was in the Senate Natural Resources Committee and the other one was in the Senate Judiciary Committee. And these groups that are telling everyone that the state will sell it all off got up and testified against the bill that would actually prohibit the state from selling any of it. So uh, very, very hypocritical. And, and then, by the way, they held a big rally about a week later telling everyone that my bill was to sell off all the land. Complete and total, utter lie. Um, the bill's very simple. You, you know, I can you can. Check it out uh, on the American Lands Council um, website or on our YouTube channel. Um, we've got it edited down so you can see just the the highlights, or you can watch the full hearing if, if you like. But uh, everything I'm telling you is, is very well documented and easy to fact check. And everything that the, the uh, opposition is telling you is just hollow and, and baseless and is not supported by fact.
0: Yeah, we'll be sure to uh, supply links to that in the show notes for this episode.
2: Okay, great. I'll send you the links. I call them the lock it up and let it – or the um, keep it public fakers because they they hashtag keep it public. So that's who they are. They keep it public. They wear wear T-shirts and stuff that say keep it public or I'm a public landowner and – And then they come in and protest against the bill. In fact, they had like 500 people in the Capitol protesting against the bills that would keep it public. And the people thought they were protesting against selling the land. The people that were protesting didn't even know what they were really protesting. They had just been fed a line of bull from the organizers. By the way, I have seen information and evidence that ties the funding of these groups to foreign interests that... Have a desire to stifle our economy and outcompete us economically. So I think there's a very strong tie between uh, foreign governments and these environmental groups that are working in concert to actually shut down our economy. And of course, the the average person doesn't know that. They they think they're just doing a good thing for the environment when they donate to the to the Wildlife Federation or the Audubon Society, or, you know, groups like that. Um, the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers is another culprit um we call them green decoys uh there's a there's an actual website dedicated to that it's it's greendecoys.com that outs these people for pretending to be sportsmen and outdoors people that care about our lands but actually being political operatives that are uh working for some very specific very far left political agendas
0: yeah you know, we know just the money alone that goes into those groups is pretty astonishing too it's you know, in the billions uh-huh. of dollars, and something that most people probably don't uh, don't know about.
2: Yeah, yeah, and uh, I know that Capital Research has done some some good research on those organizations, and, and the Green Decoys website actually documents it too, so you can see who the Green Decoys are and where their funding comes from. Pretty pretty amazing.
0: Yeah, we actually have a project at IER too. It's uh, Big Green Inc. that tracks uh, grants from oh, uh, environmental organizations and from notable foundations to people can kind of track and see where the money is going and who it's coming from and all the different places it's passing through. It's pretty astonishing. Uh-huh. The total amount of money is pretty incredible.
2: Yeah, I'd like to get links to that too. Yeah. We'll we post those up.
0: Certainly pass those to you. Jordan, do you have anything else? No, I think, Jennifer, you presented a very
1: clear view, and we appreciate you joining us and, and giving this for our listeners.
2: Sure. Thanks a lot for having me. I will follow up and send you some links that I'd love for you to attach to that so that folks can, um, you know, do a little digging on their own. And uh, of course we, we are funded by membership. So, you know, we encourage people to join it's 50 bucks a year and that's how we're able to carry the message and do what we do to get out to things like, um, you know, some of these conferences and, and get out to Washington, D.C., meet with lawmakers, meet with uh, administrative people and, work in the state legislatures as well. uh, You know, 19 states have passed legislation favoring the the transfer of public lands. But, um, you know, we've got a lot more work to do. That's only 19, and most of them are Western states. South Carolina and Arkansas, I think, were two of the eastern states that carried it. But uh, we've got our work to do to, to get more states on board. And, you know, the Republican National Committee also passed a resolution of support uh, in favor of the states transferring or the states acquiring the land and being able to manage their own land, and then um in the last platform convention it was actually included in the national platform, so we're making some headway slowly but surely, and we're hoping that um under this administration, the president will see the value of of more localized uh control over the the lands and resources and and you know, the respect for states' rights.
0: Real quick, before we go, where can people go to find out more about American Lands Council, your guys' website?
2: Yeah, the website is www.americanlandscouncil.org, and council is spelled C-O-U-N-C-I-L, and don't forget that lands is plural, so it's americanlandscouncil.org.
0: Great. Our guest today has been Jennifer Fielder from the American Lands Council. Jennifer, thanks for taking the time to join us today.
2: My pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me.